Good morning. <laughs> um, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 12 this morning, if you want to open up to that. Just by way of, of getting there, it's 12.1. Um, let, me, let me just kind of recap a little bit here. Uh, Deuteronomy 12 starts off the main body of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Moses, you remember, is preaching this series of sermons to his people. They've come through the wilderness. They've come up out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Uh, they've wandered in the wilderness for a couple weeks because we always talk about the 40 years. It's not that long of a walk from Egypt to the promised land, right? It really isn't. It's like a couple weeks, even if you do have a few thousand people. Um, and so so they make it there before too long. They make it up to the Jordan, which is kind of that, that eastern boundary of the promised land. But as they come up to that boundary, there's this, there's this conflict that happens because a number of the people who Moses has tasked with going and sort of checking out what's going on don't want to go into the promised land. They don't want to move into the place that God has brought them because the people there are a little too scary um, they're a little too big. They live in big cities. It's not going to be easy for them as this wandering, shepherding kind of nomad people, this bunch of ex-slaves to just move on into the promised land and push these people out. And so they fear and they worry and they they actually doubt that God wants something good for them. They doubt that this life that God has called them to is actually the best life. And so what they do is say, no, we don't want to go there. We don't want to do that. And God gets angry with them and says, fine, then you're going back out into the wilderness, right? Back to where I sent you, right? Go to your room for 38 years or whatever it is. But after going, when they hear that God's commandment is for them to go back to the wilderness, they then kind of get anxious and they, they sort of strap on their armor and they put on their swords and say, they say, no, God, okay, fine. We'll do what you told us. We're, we're, here we are, we're, we're putting on our weapons, we're putting on our armor, right? We're going to go fight the people you told us to fight. And they sort of head on out. And meanwhile, Moses is going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, right? The Lord's not with you. And so they go and they get shellacked. They get destroyed in the battle. Moses tells them that story in chapters 1 to 4. The story of how they came up to the edge of something good doubted, refused to trust, and received God's punishment. And so in chapter 5 and 6, Moses starts this second phase of the sermon, which is kind of the thesis statement for the rest of the book. Chapter 5 is the Ten Commandments. He tells them the story of him going up the mountain to receive those ten words from God. God speaking those ten words over the people of Israel. And then in chapter 6, he, he reminds them, you are called to this thing, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, everything that you are. And then that same refrain, to love the Lord your God, gets repeated over and over and over in chapter 6 and in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 and 11. Israel is not going to emerge through this trial. They're not going to come 
through this situation that they're in by their own strength or by their own glory. They're not going to be able to do it without being singed and burned in the process. In fact, Moses reminds them that the only way for them to enter into the life that God has promised them is to enter in through the fire of obedience and righteousness. Keep your soul diligently, Moses tells them. Look carefully after your life. Look carefully after the things in your heart. You cannot act like this process of becoming the promised people of God is an easy or a light thing, but you must pay careful attention to your soul. Even more so as you move into situations that are going to be dangerous for you. And that means, he reminds them, do not let idolatry creep creep in. Don't let the love of something else begin to take up residence in your life. Don't let other gods, don't let other loves, don't let other commitments begin to take up residence where God ought to be. Because your heart, your attention, your worship is a hugely precious thing. It's the most precious thing. This is unexpectedly prophetic. I don't know that Moses could have imagined a culture where little flashes of light and buzzes in our pockets and billboards and commercials flashing across screens all the time, begging, aching, scratching, clawing, cloying for your attention would just be normal. I I don't think Moses could have imagined a world like ours where our attention, where our time, where our focus was so precious that we're lucky if we can squeeze out five or ten minutes of focused prayer. But that's the world that we're in. I remember in high school going to the mall and getting a headache because of just the neon and the noise and the smell and just the kind of sensory overload that you would get Right in the mall. I don't get headaches in the mall anymore. Because it's phone. I mean, it's just every single place that something wants your attention. And that somebody is willing to give you something for free if you will only provide them your attention. Because we have this feeling that our time is not actually worth all that much. We're actually just trying to make it through the day. Not to use this day that we have been given the best way it can be used. Your heart, your attention, your worship is a hugely precious thing. Treat it as such. this world that Moses wants to describe and wants to prepare Israel for. 
there is a theology that's present. He says, only the Lord your God has loved you and saved you. And because the Lord your God has loved you and saved you, there is a required response from you. You're not free in this arrangement, right? It's not like the Lord has brought you out of Egypt for your own sake. No, God actually saved you for God's sake so that you might live the life that he has established for you. Now, it just so happens that that's the best life that you would be able to live. That's better than any life that you can imagine or set up for yourself, but but it's not the life that you want. Chapters 5 and 6 sort of give us this vision that we can trust that God will provide for us, that we can trust that God will lead us and help us in this journey to place ourselves ourselves in his hands. And that what we discover as we do that is that we are free. But we're free because the, the life that we live in God is exactly the life that we were made to live. We're no longer slaves to the need to be constantly creating and recreating the gods of the people around us. We're no longer slaves to our attention or our inability to focus on anything. We no longer must bow to the pressure to form idols of other precious things. But instead, we can let them be what they ought to be. We can take our possessions and say, hello, possessions. (laughs) I own you. You don't own me. Right? And because I own you, you live in the proper order of things. You live underneath my love for God. And so my life is not about arranging, collecting, and preserving my possessions. My life is about serving God, and anything that I happen to possess along the way serves that purpose. And anything that doesn't serve that purpose ought to go. It needs to get added. Our possessions are our possessions. They're gifts from God for our good, not markers of our identity. Our friends and our family can be gifts from God that remind us of the goodness of the one who does not leave us alone, but we don't need to turn them into idols that we serve. And so with all of that groundwork and probably a little bit more that I'm skipping over, Moses starts here in 12.1. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land the Lord, your God, Lord the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Now, this starts a section of Deuteronomy that's going to go all the way to chapter 26, right? It's this huge central chunk of the book. Chunk? Section? Central section? Central chunk? Okay. Of the book. And and so in chapters 12 and 13, which we're kind of covering, but we're basically covering chapter 12 this morning, these two focuses jump out. The first focus is that God is going to require, with this kind of vicious completeness, I mean, he's, he's unrelenting about it. God is going to demand and to require and to insist that Israel worships God in one place. In one place. One Lord, one sanctuary. And it's going to exclude every kind of natural place that they would want to worship God. It's going to cut out all the places that we would normally go to worship the Lord. 
But instead, he says, this is verses 2 to 4. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that land. Now, this may not connect with the way that we see the world. We don't necessarily see a mountain and go like, wow, man, that was like a really great place to worship. Um, Some of you might. I'm not sure. Um, I had a friend at one point who took me out to his property, his big backyard, and he was so proud to show me his fairy ring that he had (laughs) kind of, I don't know if he had created it or what, but there was like this little circle in the trees, and he's like, oh, this is, I see into eternity here. Okay, Um, but as Israel went into the world where they were, they would have seen the world in this way, right? They would have seen the high places as places worth worshiping. They would have seen big green trees as places that God, either the Lord God or some other God had blessed. And so that's someplace I want to worship. And these would have been places that people had worshiped for a long time. So it's easy to just kind of slip in there and take over what was happening there already. These become signs of the nearness of the heavens, right? The higher you are on the mountain, the higher, the closer you are to God, in theory. They become signs of this, like, powerful biological life. I mean, there are, like, some cool trees out there. I don't know if you've been to, like, the redwood, redwoods. I think you just kind of sit in that place, and there's there's something about Maybe there's just more oxygen or something. I don't know. But you kind of see things a little bit more clearly in places like that. We're always kind of seeking those places in the world to be able to reach beyond ourselves, to find something bigger than us. I don't know what it is about being human, but we need something bigger or older, something that's more solid than we are to remind us of God. I mean, I think we do the same today. It might not be a huge tree, although sometimes it is. We look for someone who's smarter than us to act as a guide. We look for like a life guru. Someone like whoever has the longest beard, right? We come, James, I don't know, you (laughs) you may be the one, want to be the one to lead us. Uh. (laughs) But we choose... I think oftentimes what we do is we look for a place that feels like we think it should feel. So we go to a church and we say, like, does this feel like the kind of community that I want to be a part of? If it feels like a community, then that's good. I want to sort of lock down my presence in this place. Or does this feel like the family that I want to have? Does this place give me the feeling that I think God should be giving me? But in many cases, we can't find any place to worship that gives us the feeling because some places are too big and some places are too small and no place is like just right that, you know, the people I want to know my name know my name, but not the other people I don't want to know my name. They, if they know my name, then I'm kind of out of there. We can't find that like Goldilocks church. And so instead we go somewhere else and we start 
looking for some other place that's going to give us that feeling. And maybe it's a cafe or a coffee shop or maybe it's some online group that we're a part of that gives us this sense of like belonging and membership. And this is like my identity. These are like my people. These are my tribe, we say. It might not be high places and green trees for us, but instead we isolate and idolize individual elements of the worship experience. We take what we want, we leave what we don't want. We try to find a place that is community, that has transcendence, that has belonging, that has acceptance. But then we leave those elements that kind of unbending eternality of right worship, what it is to really worship the God who is present at Mount Sinai. The Lord tells him in verse 5 to 7, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of the tribes to put his name, and he will make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. See, God says there is going to be a place for you to worship me. And all of the things that I'm going to command you to do, all of the types of offerings, all the types of services that you're going to have are going to be present there. And you'll be able to bring your offerings. Sometimes it's going to be once a year. Sometimes it's going to be more often than that. There were three or four big festivals that the Jews would go up to Jerusalem for. But you're going to be able to come together and to feast and to bring those offerings and to pour them out before the Lord and to do everything that you want to do in worship. But it's going to happen where I want it to happen. It's not going to happen in the place that you decide to put it so that all of a sudden there's these competing places where people are worshiping me. So that there's this high place over here and this altar over here and everybody knows that if you go to this altar then the priest really knows how to cut up. He really knows how to butcher meat. Uh, but this this altar, the guy, you know, he's kind, he's kind of a hack job and we don't really want to take our good cow over there. So we'll kind of go to this altar instead and he... It's not like that. The Lord says, we're going to bring you all to one place and everything's going to happen in this one place. Rather than there being dispersed worship throughout the land where people are worshiping wherever they see this nice spot, the pattern that the Lord gives is one place. Remember, one Lord. And so one altar. Now he recognizes that this is inconvenient for people. He recognizes that this means people are going to go have to go out of their way and walk for a week at some point. He recognizes that this is going to be countercultural for folks. But the absolute centrality of the sanctuary of the Lord is going to be key to the character of Israel. There's no other religion like it. It's going to mark them out from the beginning. Well, what about us? I mean, we don't have you. Most of you probably passed like three or four churches on your way here this morning. Right. We don't have one real church. We don't even have one real denomination. 
We wouldn't say that if you go and worship with the Methodists or if you worship with the Baptists, you worship with the Catholics, we're not going to say that you're worshiping a different God, right? There's disagreements and whatever, but essentially we understand ourselves to be doing the same thing. This kind of absoluteness takes its life up in us in another way. This kind of totality takes hold on us in another way. It's what we call like Christocentrism, right? That right at the middle is Christ. Christ is at the center. Now imagine, if you will, okay? If you have a ball, imagine like a tether ball, right? It's a ball on a string. And if you swing that ball sort of over your head, you got the ball doing what? Going in a circle, right, around you. Now there's two forces acting on that ball, I think. I'm pretty sure we have a physics teacher here. So <laughs> there's two forces acting on that ball. The one is the force that wants to take that ball out, that if you cut that string, it's just the ball's just going to fly off in a straight line, right? But the other is the force that keeps the ball in toward the center, and so the one force is called centripetal force. It's the force that, like, shoots things outward. The other force, the string, is the force that holds it in. And oftentimes when we're in worship, we have those two forces at work, where the one is our own, like, desires and needs. And, and those are legitimate and good <laughs> things to have. We are human. We come with needs. But our needs have this way of sort of spinning us out from each other. And so if I spend, if we spend as a church all of our time trying to meet one another's needs, you know, I'm over here sort of trying to meet Jim's need to have an entertaining preacher. He's always telling me after church I need to jump around a little bit more, right? So if I, I'm kind of meeting Jim Mansfield's needs to have this, this entertainment and this sort of active presence in his life that he can look forward to because I don't know what he does Monday to Saturday, but Sunday, you know, he wants to see something exciting. But meanwhile, you know, Betty Weiss over here, she's saying, well, I really need some like seriousness and focus in worship. And when you're jumping around and doing that thing that you do, like it just distracts me. And then my life is all out of whack. And, and we get caught in this tension of trying to meet one person's need versus another's. And pretty soon, you're just, it's like you're like nibbled to death by ducks, right? Because you just can't meet, even in a room of not that many people, you can't meet everybody's needs. And so while we obviously have that in view, if we let it control us, it becomes a centripetal force that spins us out into nothing. Because the thing at the center is Jesus himself. The thing that keeps us together is Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega and every letter in between. That we are all, no matter where we are in our journey, you need Jesus. If you're new to this thing or if you've never even trusted in Christ, you need Jesus. If you've been here longer, you've trusted in Christ, you've been sanctified, you've been glorified, you've been petrified. I mean, all of those things, like, you know that you need Jesus even more, right? And so Jesus becomes this thing that holds us in one. He becomes the thing at the center. And so what are we called to do? 
But we're called above all things to keep Jesus at the center. To be relentless about the force of Jesus' centrality. That regardless of who we are or what we need or what our preferences are, that we are going to hold Christ at the center. In John 4, you probably know the story, Jesus is walking through Samaria, which is a little bit like walking on the other side of the tracks, right? You've got kind of the good rule-following Jews on one side of the tracks, and you've got the Samaritans who are a little bit, you know, iffy on the other side of the tracks. And Jesus is walking through Samaria, and as he walks through this part of the world, he comes to a well, and he wants to drink water from the well, and he gets into a conversation with a woman who's there in the middle of the day. Now, to be at the well in the middle of the day means you're a little bit shady. It means you didn't go in the morning because you were ashamed of something and everybody else was going to be at the well. And he gets in this long, beautiful, wonderful conversation that's worthy of your attention with her. But what he ends up telling her, because the Samaritans believe that they ought to worship, because of a translation of Deuteronomy, actually, that they ought to worship at Mount Gerizim. Right? And the Jews believe that they had to worship at Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And they had this hundred-year-old debate about where the one sanctuary ought to be. The Samaritans said Gerizim, the Jews said Zion. And so she says to him, but aren't we supposed, don't you think we're supposed to worship over there? And Jesus says, yes. The true worshipers will worship God in only one place. But, he says, that place is not a mountain. That place is a person. That place is the Christ. And you're talking to him. He says, will you come in spirit and truth? Will you bring the whole of your offerings, the totality of your soul? Will you bring them to the person of Jesus Christ? And that means abandoning all those markers of satisfaction that pull us away from each other and giving them up for the force that draws us into Christ so that we can be at one with each other. Trusting instead that whether or not we feel blessed or edified by a Sunday morning, we know that we have been because God has promised to be present to us in his son, in his word, and in this meal, period. And so this leads us into the second important topic in Deuteronomy 12. Moses tells the people, when the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he's promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, that you may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you as I've commanded you. And you, you may eat within your towns whenever you desire, just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood. So you see how the problem here is that they may want to eat meat, but they're not sure if they can kill the animal without God being present. Right? I'm not sure if I can have this meal since the altar of the Lord is like two days walk away. Am I allowed to kill and, and have this meal here? Okay, so this is what Moses is dealing with. Only be sure that you don't eat the blood. For the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you. 
when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. For the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take. You shall go to the place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God. The flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I commanded you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever to do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Now, we're supposedly unfamiliar with this world, right? We read that and we go, that's a little weird. I don't really get it. But I'm pretty, I actually think these things are like underneath the surface for us. When Moses says life is in the blood, we get that. We understand that. That there's some sort of essence or force and it's a little bit mysterious and weird, but, but we sort of get it. I have a friend who had an autoimmune disease and he needed a bone marrow transplant. And he got, a, you know, a bone marrow is that like kind of, really dark red juicy stuff in the middle of your bones that makes your blood and so he had to have all his own bone marrow killed off and and get some from somebody else that was healthy so that he could make his own blood healthy again now we look at that and we go like okay that's like a good medical thing but but then kind of the trippy part is that now he has somebody else's dna if you take a DNA sample from him, he has a guy named Martin from Germany DNA in him as well as his own, right? So we kind of look at we go, that's crazy. Your DNA is kind of who you are, right? Your DNA is you. It's that special marker. And so to have two people's DNA is tough. I think we get that. Well, what is it that Moses is saying to Israel? He's saying that when you kill an animal to eat it, you can take its sustenance, right? You can take its nutrition, its calories, but, but don't take its, like, you don't take its, like, mystical life force, right? You don't drink the blood of the gazelle and think, like, oh, now I'm swift like a deer, right? Instead, pour that out on the ground. You take that mysterious, precious thing, blood, and you put it out before God because you're not in control of it. It's offered back to God. Now, why, why do you think this matters? It matters because your life is not yours either. The blood that runs through your veins is not yours ultimately to decide what to do with it. It belongs to God. Your, your life is not yours to control or determine, but it's God alone who sustains life. It's God alone who gives us life. And so we have this like ultimate sort of focus on God above and in all things. I mean, since Cain and Abel, every, I mean, people have been spilling each other's blood in an attempt to gain an edge over each other. We've been tragically reminded of that these last couple of weeks. And humanity's ability to murder and to kill as a way of exerting control and power. But the truth of the gospel is that God is at work reclaiming all life. God is at work reclaiming all of creation for his own. 
And so these words become a part of this where even the bloodshed of what we eat becomes a sign of our trust that God is the ultimate creator and sustainer of all things. It becomes a sign of God's gracious eschatological intention to bring all things back around to himself. Instead of the gods of our world, they're insatiable thirst for more. Do you see what I'm saying is that everything that we do is only a shadow of God's goodness to us. So when we do good things, when we do kind things, when we love one another, when we care for our friends and our family, when we sacrifice for those close to us, when we put ourselves out for those who are far from us, when we love the stranger, when we do that kind of stuff, what we're doing is looking forward to the God who contains and holds all life in his hands. Every small act of kindness and goodness ought to remind us of the Lord who holds all life. And by the grace of God, we no longer have to sacrifice. By the grace of God, I in my profession am not a butcher. We have a bloodless sacrifice. It's not one that requires us to pour out the blood of an animal to demonstrate the completeness of our love and obedience to God. But instead, what God wants is more significant than that. Our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And eating a meal has always been central to the worship of God's people. We can see it here. We see it in other places in scripture. But by his mercy, we are able to participate in this meal without spilling any literal blood. And also by his mercy, we're no longer confined to one building on one mountain in one city. But the meal of reconciliation and the renewal of our life has been made available to us on a regular basis because Jesus has broken apart the boundaries that previously restricted us to animal sacrifice. And so let me say, as Moses might have said to us, your life is here. Keep your soul diligently. Don't allow it to be something that slips away from you on a regular basis, but be reminded, be called to the table, come into this place of confession and repentance and renewal in the life of Your hope is in worshiping the true and only God of life. And so my question is, won't you come to the sanctuary today? Won't you come into the land of promise today? Cast down all the competing lords of your life, put them in their proper place, and present yourself to God this morning in his and his alone. Let's pray. Lord, we know we are so quick to put other things in your place. We want to make our work or our families or our reputation or our comfort, even the most important thing. But we know from your word, Lord, that truly one and only one thing matters, that you are proclaimed as Lord over all. Help us to place you first and foremost and to praise your son, Jesus Christ, as the center of all things. For he is before all things and in him all things hold together. May our lives hold together in you alone, O Lord. We need you to correct and forgive us where we have failed and to give us new life in the body and blood of your son. 